This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. And I'm actually going to ask the panel just to take one to two minutes to give a sort of, here's my perspective on what's needed in uh, industrial decarb. Nancy has kindly agreed to kick us off with the viewpoint from the FMC, and then we'll, we'll get those different views and then start getting into some of the meat and potatoes of the question. Nancy. Great. Well, a very warm welcome to all of you and very much appreciate to be here on the panel. So the, in 30 words or less, <laughs> what's really needed, I can say that it is something that is essential, but super unsexy. It's called purchasing, procurement. And that's something that I'll bring to the conversation today. But we can talk as much as we want about we need to shift, we need to change, we need to have new products in the market. But guess what? If the buy side, the demand side isn't there, then it's not going to happen. So it's as simple as you got to have the buyers and that's procurement. That really was probably 30 words or less. So thank you. Thomas, why don't I come to you and then we'll work our way back around the panel. I would say one, one of the things we really desperately need is better collaboration. I think this is really something that is important today. I mean, we are traveling the world. We see we all have an history and some understanding of what was done in the past. People need to shift their understanding and we need to really now work together, making things happen. We are reaching out. I mean, we work with FMC, of course, we work with MPP, but beyond that, on the ground, in the countries, it's very important that people open up and start to speak openly about what we can do on how we can move the things forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's true that both in your organization, amongst our membership, and you know, much of what we see in industry, the, the real motion towards the outcome is, is coming as the fruit of collaboration and good partnerships. So, yes. Uh, Greg, I'll yeah, come to you. Absolutely. I think collaboration is a, is a massive point. And just to add on top of that, I think this, this idea of whole systems thinking, we need to actually work out why is it that we need this thing delivered in this place? Can it be done in slightly different ways? Who are the buyers? Who are the sellers? How do they interact? And what is this whole system of, uh, and potentially approach of how we can deliver these things kind of across not just one territory, but over multiple? So I'd probably start there and okay. pass it back. And you're, you're going to wear two hats for us today, aren't we? Yes. Yes. The hat of the energy systems catapult, but also your specific lens on data and innovation. Yeah, I think there, there's that kind of additional angle of if you want to do this whole system thinking, if you want buyers, if you want sellers, how do you find them? You need data. You need to understand what it is they're buying, whether it is they're selling, where, when, how, for how much. And then there's the kind of more intimate points around if you're doing some innovation around a particular material or whatever it happens to be, sharing that information with others so that you can accelerate and build upon what you're doing rather than starting again every time someone says, I have an idea. Right. Yeah. 
Magali, can I come to you? Well, the thing about being with the uh, ex-Hall team is that collaboration, partnership, system thinking, innovation have already been said. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. I appreciate. So I will just go myself to, to maybe a, a bit more internal then, as this is very external. I think what's important is to put really sustainability at the heart of the business model of the company and set at the end the operations as Thomas said, are the ones who are going to make it happen, and we need to set them up for success by having the right setup of incentives, KPI, toolbox, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Well, and I know you've already had some great successes in Holcim. We'll be uh, hopefully touching later on the fact that you've already gone from the overarching plan down to how it's going to be deployed at site level, which yeah. puts you well ahead of uh, competition and peer group, I would say. So, Manosic? Um I think it's pretty difficult when you are sitting in that. <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> but again, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to kind of re-emphasize the fact that it's it's a systemic change that yeah. we need to kind of bring into the um, uh, bring into the picture. It's about value chain collaboration. Sorry, I'm repeating my kind of repeating what my fellow panelists have already already mentioned. But it's critical. We need the value chain collaboration. We need value chain collaboration across different aspects across the energy ecosystem. We need it in terms of technology, removing technology barriers, and I can go on and on. Just one thing I think I would like to mention in terms of the mission possible partnership is that, um, as you mentioned, Alex, um, last till last year we were focusing very heavily in working with corporates, coming up with sector transition strategies across this, what we call as a seven hard to abate sectors. Um, so the six of the sector transition strategies are already out. We are waiting for the seventh one, the cement one to be coming out very soon as well. Uh, but what we are now doing is we are changing focus. We need to get to the ground to work with first projects and get those first projects to what we are calling as the, their final investment decision. Um, and that's where we believe we'll be kind of getting things rolling and can bring acceleration in this entire sort of challenge problem. Okay, well, that, that's interesting. So we're gonna come to a question now, which kind of explores where each of you feel the, the kind of the next challenge sits. Is it still a macro issue? Is it still about system? Is it still about overarching policy or whatever it may be? Or is it something more on the ground, more day-to-day uh, -day that you think is going to be the, the next challenge to overcome. Why don't, I'll, I'll start with you then loop that round since it kind of matches into what you just said. Thank you, Alex. So when I'm thinking about the challenges on the ground, I think it's a, it's a combination of what we call as the macro challenges or the system-driven challenges, as well as challenges on the ground in terms of getting final investment decisions for individual projects. I'm talking about commercial scale projects, not really kind of pilot projects. So if I'm thinking across all of the sectors that we have worked on and trying to identify what are the key themes, I would say that one is um, in terms of support for technology in ramping up of the technologies, getting the technologies which are at a lower TRL to a higher TRL so that we can get them to a commercial scale. The big challenge is in terms of getting early demand, create that kind of ecosystem where we get that early demand. The next one is bridging the green premium. The other one will be in terms of unlocking investments. And final one, if I would say, is uh, kind of putting in the infrastructure that's needed to deliver on all of these energy kind of transition um, that's needed for, um, uh, for the industry's decarbonization. Okay. And I can go on and on, but I think I need my fellow panelists to kind of chip in as well. 
Thomas, I'm going to go to you next. So macro or more on the ground? Where does the next big... I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, um, uh, on, on, if I go from top down, I mean, I would, I would give the, the following, you know, experience more than recommendation. Um, for me, at very high level, at global level, I would say there are too many people doing too, too, too much of the same thing. Uh, we had a discussion last time with the high-level climate champions. And, you know, we have called them and we said, okay, let's organize ourselves so that mission innovation, breakthrough uh, cement, uh, MPP, uh, all the guys that are today in good faith involved in this initiative to say, okay, let's see how we work. And let's make sure that everyone gets his, his, his nuts to, to, to crack on, on, on these things to act on. Because else, you know, we are too much of in the big, big uh, uh, generic uh, uh, idea of, yes, we need demand signals. Yes, I think we all agree now about that. And thank you for that. <laughs> the question is then, how do you translate it? And that's probably the second level of systemic. In the countries today, we, have, we don't have people that have the same understanding and that the same trust in, in, the, in the systemic change that you guys are proposing and that we have been discussing for years. When you go to Egypt, for example, when you go to uh, countries around the world, I mean, you are still have to restart and to resume the discussion saying, okay, how do we make things change? And there are some small things that can fundamentally change and create the condition for change. I'm thinking of secularity, how it is possible today not to have a discussion on secularity or not to have a legislation that authorizes secularity. Yes, it needs, you need to have a landfill tax or a landfill bar. It is always cheaper, whatever you do, to put the things under the carpet than to do something with the material, right? So this is, these are the type of systemic change that needs to do. And then if you go one level down at company level, the question is to say, okay, let's make things happen. I always tell to my members and to the people that I travel, we need to put the project on the ground. We do that with MPP at, at hub level to discuss that. If there is no project, there is no progress, right? So when you have the project, you can start discussion on, okay, how do I finance? What are the permits? How are the things connecting in the big picture at, my, at macro level at, in, the, in the country? And this is what people are expecting at some point. We need to start to put the things on the ground. And not only in Europe, on USA, which is very nice on progressing, but also, and particularly in cement, 80% of the cement comes demand, sorry, 80% of the cement demand comes outside Europe and America. So these countries are essential. Africa, India, it is essential to progress also in this direction. Okay, thank you. Nancy, we're going to talk a little more in detail about uh, FMC and its mission, but just at, at that kind of broad level, like, do you see the challenge for FMC next? Is it, is it this whole, how do we get people bought in or, or is it what happens next in that kind of more on the ground uh, reality? Well, somebody's covered the, it needs to be strategic and we need to have the strategic perspective. <laughs> We've had the, and we need to bring it to the ground and we need to make sure we're bringing it to the right ground. So what's left? The middle. But actually, I think that's the problem. Who here doesn't think that we don't have enough strategy ideas? And I agree with you. If I have one more, let's start a new initiative. Let's do a new MOU. Let's do a new, I mean, seriously, we've covered that for the last 10, 15, 20, oh, I'm aging myself, <clears throat> 10 years. <laughs> what we need, and, and excuse me, but we've done number of on-the-ground projects, right? A plethora of on-the-ground projects. Well, how can we not figure out to take the big of the numerous strategies and roadmaps and we need to in these technologies and the examples of the on-the-ground projects, and I'm sorry, connect them. So I think what we need is the connective tissue because we don't have time to just recast one more time. And basically the on-ground projects, if we're not learning and actually scaling them, then we'll be 10 years from now still 
discovering the on-the-ground project. So I love the opportunity to talk about First Movers Coalition because we're that middle. You're the connected tissue. Greg. How, how do you communicate what you have learned in those on-the-ground projects? How do you communicate what your strategy is? You need to pass data to other participants. You need to make it open. You need to provide what you have learned, what worked, and particularly what didn't work. Because what we don't need is another 10 years of putting boots on the ground, digging things up, building stuff for something that someone has already proved doesn't scale and doesn't work unless this policy changes or there's a shift in geopolitics and somehow something else happens. Like We know, and some people in various industries know, certain things will not work. And we've got loads of innovators out in this hall and this, uh, sitting down listening to me for some reason. And we need to communicate better. And we don't have time for Nancy or myself or whomever to speak to everyone individually. We need a way to quickly and articulately pass that information to each other and say, look, this is what worked. This is why it worked. This is what didn't work. This is why it didn't work. And until we do that, we're going to have another 10 years of messing around. Okay. Um, so, Nancy, I'm going to come back to you with this. So, as we've said, the First Movers Coalition focuses on the need for advanced market commitments. So, those big, chunky contracts that commit people to buying lower carbon or green, wherever I'll say that, you know, products in different sectors. How, first of all, how are you doing that? Just as a primer for the people in the room that don't know, like, how does that work? to get those advanced market commitments in place? Well, for those of you I mentioned, you know, what I think that is really necessary is procurement. So let me talk a little bit about the First Movers Coalition. It is an initiative that basically puts buying power at the heart of how it's seeking to have change. So what you've got is a company such as hmm, Wholesome, who is a member of the First Movers Coalition. And they, among other companies, are buying stuff that they've been buying for many years. In fact, these are the sectors that we like to call the hard to abate. I call them the economically essential because I don't see how you're doing business without them because they're either on the long range transportation, the shipping, the trucking uh, or the aviation. So if you're not moving people or product, what are you doing? Um, or they're on the materials, the steel, the aluminum, the cement and concrete. Right. And from that perspective, again, most of the products out there have some aspect of that. So you've got these economically essential sectors. You've got companies who've been buying in those sectors for as long as they've been in the business that they've been in. So what are we asking them to do? Well, I want you to continue buying. Well, okay, that's easy. But what I want you to do is I want you to continue buying, but I now want you to buy that thing, and I want that thing to meet a lower GHG emissions definition in scope to the First Movers Coalition. Now, we've been, let's be honest, a little bit sneaky because our sneakiness is that we've set that definition for where it's very hard to achieve, uh, as my colleague will attest in a moment. But we've done so because to achieve it, what that company needs to do is to pivot to a supplier and say, I've been buying from you for 10, 15, 20 years. I want to continue buying. But now what I want to do is I want to buy your product at the definition of this GHG reduction. We know that's only achievable through the use of a mix of new innovative technologies and clean energy sources. So the only way that supplier and buyer relationship continues that has had a long history is for that supplier to go ahead and pivot, 
to change, to use the technologies and energy sources that we all agree, we better move their ass up in availability because if not, we're not gonna have a 2040 or a 2050 conversation, right? This needs to happen by 2030. So this is what First Movers does. It takes that very unsexy, unattractive, if you're ever out on a date, do not start on a procurement conversation because it'll be a quick night, but it takes that power, it leverages these re existing relationships and in through that procurement, it gives a supplier who's like, you want me to do what? It makes them change because you've got a company like Wholesome who's saying, I'm credible and I'm putting myself behind this. I will go ahead and walk you through this transition, which is why it's called the First Movers Coalition because it's really companies who are taking the risk, who are stepping forward, who are showing their commitment to decarbonization, not through another MOU, a set of t-shirts, an infomercial on their website, but they're actually making contracts with suppliers, small scale, because it's risky stuff, because they're asking that supplier to significantly change behavior. And I think this is coming about because you've got those companies recognizing that if we're living in the climate emergency, they're gonna to have to do business differently. It's pure operational common sense. And so if they're doing that, what's the thing that you need is you need to lock up a supply chain that's gonna be the one that's resilient and innovative. And that's where you start talking about suppliers that are decarbonizing. Okay, a follow-up question, but just a brief answer on this one because we'll probably Sorry. come back in. No, 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 because we'll come back to it. Uh, I'm sure it'll come up in other, other parts of this. So when you and I were doing our prep call, we were talking about the fact that, you know, you can have a materials manufacturer do the right thing. You could have someone way down the value chain that wants to buy a greener product, IKEA as an example, and many others, but that sometimes it's this middle part of the value chain that is either passively or actively kind of blocking that because they're used to the way the supply chain works and, and so forth. So we've started to see members bridging that, going direct to a buyer that they didn't used to have a direct relationship with. But I'm interested in, in your view and Magalie Thomas in particular, if you want to step in on this, like how do we get that middle part of the value chain, the people that are distributing perhaps the product to buy into green material procurement or low carbon material procurement? Yeah, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm pretty much grounded in the whole reality check thing. So let's talk about that. So I think what's happened previously is that you didn't have a value chain perspective. So you had a single company going out and talking with the supplier and saying, I want you to do this differently. And there's, you hear the mention of the price premium, right? Well, yeah, there is a price premium if we're wanting to go ahead and change these products and services. And somebody's gonna have to pay it. I think in our conversation, I use the suck it up factor. I've been told that this is not very good marketing. I apologize, but let's just be honest. Somebody's sucking it up, right? It's either going to be somebody in that value chain. The more that you have the members of the value chain participating, that factor decreases. And there's studies that show that. So what you want is you want the whole value chain swinging in the right direction. Absent that, you're going to have companies undercutting each other. You're going to have things in which you have blockers. But once the whole value chain says, no, 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 we're going in this direction, then you have those unblockers free up. Now, are you still gonna have a price premium? Yes, you are. In fact, I would like somebody to show me, you know, when everybody's talking about, well, we'll buy that when it's economically equitable to the carbonized version. Well, then you ain't ever buying it or else we won't be here for you to actually make it. 
somebody is going to bear a cost. And if it's not somebody in that value chain, it's going to be somebody in that enabling environment called the government. Those are the players. So one of the things I always want to make the point of saying is I get to represent the first movers coalition. Those companies are also bearing that fair share of that price premium. Those companies are actually being first movers. And if any of you are in the market for those things, go to those companies because they're through that truly showing their investment, making a difference. But yes, you can go ahead and use out of this panel, the suck it up price premium. So Manasaj, I'm going to come back to you. So you've been doing this kind of significant piece of work and putting in place these roadmaps across six of the seven key industries. Do you think, I mean, again, there's a, such a mixed level of experience in the room, I'm sure, about kind of who knows what about industrial decarb. What, what has, what the most kind of similar themes across the board? And again, that question of what, what's next? So you mentioned getting more into on the ground, but what does that mean? It's a very again, good question, Alex. Brief. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. I'll be brief. Um, so in terms of, if I'm thinking about it from an industry actions perspective, I, I keep on going back to the theme. We are at a point where we cannot not take action. This is the decade of taking action. And we need to reach those, what we call the, the, the kind of the S-curves, the tipping points of those S-curves. So what do we need to get there? A single organization, a single project won't actually kind of solve the problem. We need more of these projects on the ground. We, again, we need more of these technology demonstrations to reach a point where they are commercially viable on their own. They don't need the kind of the propping arm of policy, need the propping arm of, for example, green premium. So that needs to happen. We need projects on the ground to reach final investment decisions. So there are more projects, more are being replicated. We are getting products being produced at scale. In terms of, when I'm thinking about it from kind of creating early demand, um, Nancy, you mentioned in terms of creating early demand, absolutely, we need to have those early demands. And there are certain mechanisms that need to come in place as well. Say, for example, certification mechanisms. Let's talk about kind of book and claim mechanisms. So those things need to happen across these sectors. And finally, one last thing I would like love to say is kind of, um, it's come back to the kind of the genesis of MPP. So we are now moving towards providing on-ground support to organizations to help them reach final investment decisions for their green projects, leverage hubs, leverage synergies across hubs, build infrastructure, shared infrastructure, say for example, hydrogen infrastructure, CCS infrastructure in a network, in a hub, which helps you in kind of lowering your overall CapEx investment at that point in time and kind of make certain projects more financially viable uh, kind of sooner rather than later. I'm going to come to you, Thomas, actually, because uh, kind of following on from the MPP's work in multiple tracks, obviously the GCCA has been leading that uh, significant piece of work on the cement and concrete roadmap. And I, I think I'm right in saying that since putting that in place, members have already reduced emissions by 2%. Is that right? Yeah. Now, there is a, the, the, the cement industry as such has a long history of tracking its emission. I mean, back yeah. in uh, 1990, there is a system in place, which, which was an industry uh, developed at the time by World Business Council CSI initiative, and we have kept that. So there is a progression of 20% between 1990 and 2019. And the last year that we have published is actually plus two percentage points, which is good because it means that the, the pace of development is increasing, and this reflects some of the of the early action, some of the 
really important things, and in particular, uh, the, the, the cost of carbon in Europe that, that have exploded. We are two years delay. That's due to the uh, competition regulation, right? So we cannot publish uh, two data that are too, too, too early. Uh, so I'm really eager on, on waiting for the next steps because I really hope that we will actually further accelerate on the development. So yes, the good news is, first, there are technologies today that enable to go low carbon, low carbon, not near zero, low carbon for the time being. This is progressing. This is happening. This is happening in the industry. These technologies are getting wrong. This will increase, and that's what we have in the roadmap. We have 10 years to really accelerate these things. And you have technologies, the near zero technologies, which are under development, which exist as well. I mean, we have plants. We have a lot of projects. I just come back from China. China is looking at that. I mean, in one week, they announced me three projects, three big projects on carbon capture, testing new things, testing new ideas. So, I mean, if the Chinese starts to move in there, that, that will definitely accelerate the, <laughs> the pace of action, if I may say. Um, and, and the good news is that there is really uh, a tremendous also acceleration in the uh, will of the companies together. When we published the roadmap in 2021 before the COP of Glasgow, we had difficulties to commit on 10 projects by 2030. I say difficulties to commit on 10. I should not say that. Huh? I mean, uh, please don't, don't quote me. I will be fired. <laughs> uh, today, today, 37 projects announced, big projects, thanks to IRA, thanks to the innovation uh, uh, systems in Europe, but not only in Europe, in Europe also in, in India, also in other countries, etc. And we made a survey within our members. It's more than 105 projects being currently elaborated. These projects are complicated. They are under NDA. They cannot be communicated. So, this shows the tremendous acceleration on appropriation by the cement companies, by the cement sector, in getting these things moved. And in particular, on TCUS, it's very important. On there, I really make a distinction between the low-carbon technologies and the near-zero technologies. On the, in our response with uh, demand signals, with all these things, we need really to, to differentiate these two, these two elements. And, and the, the need to develop these near-zero technologies is really fundamental for me. Magalie, I'm going to come to you because obviously you're a member of Everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're, I mean, Holstim and, and you have done this amazing piece of work in actually translating these high level roadmaps into site by site uh, plans, I guess is the best way to describe them. Is there, can you tell us a little bit like how does that work? Because I mean, I, I, roadmaps are great. We need them. But there's a big gap between that and someone, you know, heading up one of your plants actually knowing what to do. So how, how has that worked? Well, I go back to what Nancy said at the beginning when she said, we need to stop strategy. Gosh, I could not agree more. So two years ago or one year ago, when we finished with all our SBTI, net zero, da, 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 we said, okay, no more strategy work, 100% focus implementation. And if you want to accelerate implementation, I don't know any plant manager who goes to work in the morning saying, I'm going to destroy the planet a bit more today. And I'm happy about it. They all want to do the right thing, but so you need to understand what stops them from doing the right thing. And what stops them can be many things. One of them is not knowing what to do. And it sounds a bit silly, but decarbonizing cement is quite taking hold. So making sure everyone has the right toolbox is important. The second one is conflict of objectives. Yeah. In many companies, most objectives of people are purely financial. And you know, a lot of my work was done with the CFO because it was really let aligned so that the plant manager or the country manager doesn't have to choose between her and me. And I think it's likely the CFO would have won against me. So I had a very vested interest to make that work, which is how we developed 
objectives. Um, our long-term incentive now, 30% is on sustainability. And after is, is really uh, monitoring, measuring, as we know, we need to measure things. So today, we have monthly report of our data. I receive at the same time than the financial data, the sustainability main KPI, such as CO2, water, etc. And with that, I can, sorry, and part of our roadmap, we also have the capex spend per plant. So with all these elements, people are, as I was saying earlier, set for success, and they can really follow which each plant does. And if one plant is starting to divide, for whatever reason, doesn't matter, but we can go and support, because it's likely there's something wrong, and which is not under the control of the plant manager, which we can go and, and so this is really, so at plant level, I think it's purely back to the basics, what makes impact, what people have to do in their day-to-day -day life, and making their life easy and being very pragmatic about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, necessarily the conversation in industry has been about technology, technology hasn't it? But that behavioral piece, like either how you get people bought into it through their long-term incentive or however, and the cultural piece of how it becomes front of mind are just, you know, they're so important. You know, uh, Thomas earlier talked about the fact that uh, the industry reduced a lot in the 90s. In Holcim, the first time we set a target was 2002, and we have reduced about 30% since 1990. So traditional levers, we know them well. And that's why I always think as a two-speed strategy, there are things we need to do today, which are technologies that exist, well implemented, well understood, but needs to be deployed all around the world. Of course, it's more deployed in Europe because of the type of incentive system that are in place, but we need to deploy it around the world and accelerate that. And this is where what I mentioned works. And then working for the long term, which is carbon capture, where we have 50 projects ongoing, but we fully understand that we cannot just sit and say, one day there will be a technology yeah. that will work and save us. So we need to stop now. And I will give one life, one life example, again, going back to low carbon versus near zero. Today, we have um, a global brand of uh, low carbon concrete called EcoPact, which is 30% lower CO2 than the country um, standard. We launched it almost three years ago, two years and a half. And uh, Q1, we, we submitted our results. It represents today 16% of our total sales. And I challenge any company who launch a new product that reached 16% sales within less than three years. And really, it shows the appetite of the market. It shows that we need to go be bold and, 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 and just deploy and go, go, go. And that works. Um, Greg, I'm going to come to you because I think this, this piece about how, how do you translate the kind of the work of policy that sets the foundations and background to this, the kind of innovation and then on the ground support is obviously, I know you're focused on the digitalization piece, but I think there are some lessons there. Yeah, there's, I think very broadly, and to try and keep it quite brief, it's, to, to be effective in this space, you need to be an excellent translator. And I don't mean from English to French. I mean from policymaker to academic to a government official to an industrial client to an innovator who's just working in the front room and have got an idea. We are all talking the same language in different ways. We are all talking about getting to net zero. We're all talking about making this a just transition. We're all talking about doing this effectively and efficiently and so on and so forth. But we use different languages, we use different vocabularies. And part of the, the skill that we all need to develop and something that we do at the Catapult, I think quite successfully, is being able to put these disparate type of people in a room and say, right, you're talking about this. You're talking about this as well, just in different language. Your objective is A, your objective is 
8.5, right? Can we agree that we're talking about the same thing and we want to achieve it? Let's get on with it and actually just try and identify when, when it is the right time for the different players to intervene. Very early stages, you want academics along because you're at the edge of human knowledge. Mm. Then you get to this innovator stage where, oh, right, we now know how to do it. Now, how can we apply it? Okay, great. Now we can apply it. Now we want to bring it and it's going to be an industry of some description. And then at a certain stage of that, you need to turn to government and say, actually, it doesn't quite, the economics don't quite work or there's this bit of policy or there's this bit of regulation. Now is the time to change it. You don't do that point when an academic comes to you and says, hey, we can do this new fancy thing. You wait until you've proven it. You've got the data, you've communicated it, people are bought in and you're ready to go. So it's about finding the right times and the right people having the right conversations and then to accelerate that publish your data show people that you're doing it um, aggregate it if it's commercially sensitive and let people look and they will they will iterate on it they will come to you and tell you i can shave two percent here or i can cut your costs by five percent there if they can just look and that's the core message i think i've got Thanks for that. I think I think that the that whole next phase of people needing to share more data than maybe they have, but clearly we can't expect people to do something that's so competitive that it's not real. But that that does feel like a conversation that's brewing a bit, like how we get shared shared information, shared data well, of experience within the energy sector in the UK. What what Ofgem has done for the energy networks is to say to them that your data is presumed open. That doesn't mean that all their data is published willy-nilly. But what it means is you look at that data set and say, okay, I need to justify why that data cannot be published. And that's changed the mindset. That helps change cultures. If any of your kind of organizations took that approach, they would say, yeah, maybe 80% of my data is commercially sensitive and I can't publish it. But what if I could aggregate it in some way? What if I could pull it up a level and say, okay, you, can, you now can't work out all the commercial sensitivity stuff, but you still get interesting, valuable data that you can get insights and learnings from. And how do we accelerate that cultural change across all these hard to abate industries? We're starting to see it in energy and I'm willing to hear if it's happening elsewhere. So we're going to do some quick fire answers here. Put your hand up if you think you can take any of these on. So question number one, how can we make end consumers care about low carbon materials? within a complex product that they may be buying. Any thoughts? I mean, I mean honestly, I believe very much in, the, in, the, in, uh, in regulation and in uh, administrative decisions sometimes. When European Union says, as of 2035, no more benzene car, the message is clear. I mean, you know, and I believe that at some point, you know, I was discussing with, again with, uh, with the guys in Emirates in Dubai. I say, I'm a mayor of Dubai today. I say, as of 2030, you don't build a single building without uh, well, that is not zero carbon embedded. Point finish. And and the guys will work it out, or they will make it happen. So, for me, it's not. A, I think fundamentally, uh, you know, we, we see that we all buy uh, object Nikes, whatever. I mean, we are all sensitive now to these things. But the problem is not. About, I don't think the problem is with the end user customer. In in a, in a house, the cost of cement, net zero cement in a house, is about three to five percent additional cost. I mean, honestly, who, who I mean that. You know, this is the negotiation with the with the guy that builds the house, right? So everybody will buy. I don't think the problem is with the um, is with the um, the, un, the the end user customers. I think the problem is 
honestly with the regulation, with, with the administration on making sure that they understand what we could put in place to create the market space so that this product have a market. I Just one word. I think a net zero material cannot compete with a non-net zero material. And we have to give it a different market space. That's, that's my, my, my strong belief, particularly in steel, in cement, where you cannot uh, be at the same pri level, price level with, uh, with being net zero. Yes. Can I just add to that? I'm totally kind of aligned with what you just mentioned, Thomas. So I, I also think this is kind of changing the hearts and minds of people might take a lot of time. And do we really have that much amount of time? I don't. Personally, I don't think so. So what needs, what can happen is kind of mandates, thinking about it from a policy perspective, bring in policies which will help, for example, uh, zero emission or low emission steel and cement in geographies where the, as you are calling Nancy, the suckers can pay. So bring them in and help that kind of um, change happen faster and faster. So I, I, I think that's, that's the way to go forward. Nancy? I'm sorry, if the consumer has to be one more carrying the water for all of the climate change stuff, could we just stop, right? We're not going to change this because the consumer decided to pay an extra pound, euro, dollar. It's not the consumer. It's the leading 10, 15 companies in most every sector, and it's the governments. That's the money who's going to change the timeline. So could you just leave the consumers alone? Have them have a nice bottle of wine that's economically accessible and some quality television and just call it a day. Okay, next question. It's an interesting one. So as a buyer, most of my suppliers can't yet provide me with car uh, product carbon footprints and where they can, they use different boundaries. Uh, I've recently had two conversations with members that flips this. I, the member is like, I'm getting approached by buyers who are all asking me for this information in different ways and in different systems and with different categories. But the, the question still remains, how, how do we resolve that? I'm looking to you, Magali, to say, have you got a magic no, solution? I think, um, so I believe on science, everything has to be database, rigorous, etc. And there's a, at least in our sector, it might not be the same for every sector, there's something very simple called EPDs, Environmental Product Declaration. We looked at the total life cycle, the three scopes of our products. We are deploying that at scale. North America was where it started, where it's kind of part of the, of the habit of people to ask for EPDs, so we have plenty there. But we are now deploying the world. And uh, back to what we are saying, if tomorrow morning uh, public procurement was saying we need EPDs for every single construction project and we will award it to the one with the lowest CO2 based on a science-based uh, third-party verified um, environmental declaration, then I think we'll make a huge amount of progress. And so they exist. For small companies, it might be a bit harder, I agree, but at least for the big companies, we can really lead the pack there and, and deploy that at scale. Nancy? I think for this one, I'll level aside, this is a major issue. And to have, expect companies to put products in markets and to have the power, the power of purchasing from the public fund actually be equitable and fair, it really needs an emphasis on decisions in the form of standards, and certifications. So I think there needs to be a whole bunch of work that's done with that. And I think data plays a big role in that because this is where, how those standards drive what data, what process for that data to be counted is essential. So that really is an area of focus that I think needs to happen. Yeah, and particularly on kind of data standards, like we have data standards for everything. And what typically happens is you have a data standard and say, oh, it doesn't quite work for this. and really smart people get together and say, oh, you know, there's like 15 standards, none of them all, none of them all quite work. 
So what you end up with is a 16 standards. And we, we continually do this in every sector. So at a certain point, you just need someone to make a decision. It doesn't have to be perfect. Pick a standard, establish it in the market, and just get on with it. And it might be a different standard in the EU and the US, so be it. People, companies can adapt to that. There's loads of examples there. But someone just needs to pick something and make that decision. Okay, last question. Um, I, this was specifically a concrete question, but I'm actually going to make it more broad. So can you provide an example of one of the most successful interventions you've seen to reduce emissions in concrete or in another sector? <laughs> but I, I'll start with uh, Manasaj, actually. I just wonder whether amongst your group, what's the most successful thing you've seen so far? I'll kind of, again, take a cross-sector role view. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to the, uh, to the concrete, cement and concrete experts to on, answer that. So in terms from a cross-sectoral perspective, I would say CCS is a, is a massive big lever which can help us decarbonize. And obviously, the kind of the clean energy vectors, I'm talking about green hydrogen. And it is, it, it, it is viable right now in some geographies, more so than in other geographies. But it's, it's already out there. So I, I think that's, that's going to really make a big difference. And there's the circularity and the material efficiency, overall efficiency life cycles as well. Thank you. No, I already mentioned the eco pack, which represents 60% of sales. I think that's a pretty big success. That's a pretty big success. Sorry. What I could mention, maybe because we talked about partnership before, but when we get together with a, with a big customer, and in our case was Amazon, where we had the, we can really work together on how you design your building, et cetera, and you can cut embodied emissions much greater. So this type of collaboration, which are not that complicated because it's one company with another one, it's not the entire value chain, can really bring some very quick uh, gain. Thank you. Wek? I mean, I'm coming at this purely from an energy perspective. Yep. And I think what I would see is, essentially, it comes down to sites. Where are you, where are you building uh, and, and making these materials? And what is the, the grid in that area doing? If the grid's decarbonizing in a consistent way, great, because, and then are you using electrical or other vectors for energy? Um, I'm kind of slightly out of my own domain here, so I'm going to pass on, but I think just where we do need to focus on that decarbonisation of the grid, because it is the enabler for all these other things as well, but I'll pass on. Nancy, biggest success you've seen so far, or example of it? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not sexy, but it's contract clauses. Right, it's uh, it's weighted factors so that when a company comes in and says to their uh, customer, "Hey, you say in your public reports you put all these sustainability statements out there, you care about this." Well, here's my response. First of all, stop asking me for just a quote. Actually, give me something more than just money that's competitive, and then put something in there and show me that there's a weighted factor that if I've incurred this cost, you actually care. Give me your business. Give me large scale of your business. So yeah, contract clause. Thomas, you get the last word. I, I get the last word. I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say three words. I say Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, in, in, if you think where, what the guys have been doing, honestly, I mean, we had Donald Trump saying, okay, bye-bye, guys. I'm not interested at all in anything about climate. Then you have President Biden coming. In two years, he puts together how many? Six trillions or three trillions of legislation, bilateral legislation, focus essentially on climate change, essentially on climate change. Every single industry gets a piece to work on innovation, on development of infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Who dreams better than that? Honestly, never. They paid the premium, didn't they? <laughs> they paid the premium. Yeah. But you know, somebody needs to pay at the end of the day. I That's would say right. you have two people that pay, government 
our customers. When people tell me industry needs to pay, it doesn't exist. We are in an economic world. I have members that say I pay, they invest, they don't get return on investment. They are either fired or then the next one will do the same mistake or they go bankrupt and you don't have anybody to, to pay for anymore, right? So it's government or customers. And thanks to the demand signals, you are making the shift from government to customers. And at the end of the day, we all have to pay, right? I mean, we pay for cleaning our water, we pay for cleaning our clothes, we have to pay for cleaning our hair, point. Nothing else. Well, there we are. That really was a good final word. Thank you to the, to the whole panel. Really appreciate the time you took to prepare and for your comments. And to the Innovation Zero team for putting this together. Hope you all enjoyed it. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.